Open the word of God, please, to Acts chapter 2. Thank you, brothers, that just went before me. For those of you that are viewing or listening to this sermon at some other time in some other place, we open this service with 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1, and the statement there that the sons of God are not known by the world, because the world did not know the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. And those that are Christ's are not known by natural men, 1 Corinthians 2.15, because the kingdom of God does not come with observation, Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. We then had presented to us Psalm 94, the presenter not considering at all how his psalm would connect with what we have to cover this morning from Acts chapter 2. Because his goal was Psalm 94 and verse 19. But I want to read about eight verses from Psalm 94 to set the stage for Acts 2. The first five verses and the last three verses. Phenomenal connection made by God himself without our corroboration. Because we're not wise enough. But he is. Listen to this. Never has there been a generation in the history of the world more wicked and violent and bloodshedding than the one of the apostles. Never has there been a generation that even comes close to that generation. So if Psalm 94 is addressing wicked men in a terrible generation, it fits that generation better than even David who wrote it. Beginning at the first verse, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongeth, O God, to whom vengeance belongeth, show thyself. Lift up thyself, thou judge of the earth. Render a reward to the proud. Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? How long shall they utter and speak hard things, and all the workers of iniquity boast themselves? That is a description of the murderers of the Lord Jesus Christ. If it, is, if it is a description of anyone that has ever lived. That's the first four verses. Then verses 21 through 23. They gather themselves together against the soul of the righteous and condemn the innocent blood. But the Lord is my defense and my God is the rock of my refuge and he shall bring upon them their own iniquity and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. Yea, the Lord our God shall cut them off. And we are going to learn that from Acts chapter 2 today. Now our brother presented Psalm 94 and the 19th verse very, very well. And there is great wisdom in that 19th verse. But unbeknownst to him, and unbeknownst to me, what a connection. There's never been a generation so wicked as the generation that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly what they were called. This wicked and perverse, adulterous generation. I cast out devils. They leave at my power. They come back and find the houses where I threw them out, garnished and swept. And they go and get seven more devils like themselves. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it be to this generation. He left them a devil-possessed generation to bring upon them the greatest tribulation in the history of the world. And they deserved every bit of it. 
But the people of God, those that called upon the Lord, that believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, that followed the advice and instructions of their Savior, were all delivered, every one of them. Amen. Acts chapter 2. Thank you, men. Thank you, Dad, for praying. Thank you for the song leading. Thank you for the prayers in the back room this morning. Acts chapter 2. I want to read to you our next section, which is verses 14 through 21, where Peter declares the miraculous speech of their gift of tongues, fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy that leads to a warning of coming judgment on that generation. Acts 2 at verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit. And they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen and amen. What a day it was. Nearly 2,000 years ago, the day of Pentecost had fully come. The people of God, a small band of around 120, were of one mind, as it tells us in the first verse, and of one accord, and were in one place. And suddenly, there was the sound of a rushing mighty wind. Not a rushing mighty wind, but the sound of one that filled that house getting the attention of all of them that God was doing something drastic and powerful. Because Jesus had told them in chapter 1, recorded there as well, to remain in Jerusalem until they be endued with power from on high. Luke 24 had warned, promised the same thing there as well. And so the Spirit came, there were little fires on their heads, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit filled each of these backwoods rednecks from Galilee. That is not to disrespect the home country of our Lord, nor his apostles. It's to identify these men as being unlearned, uneducated, and could not even speak Hebrew well, because if they opened their mouths in public, it was immediately recognized that they were uneducated, unlearned, and had the backwoods dialect. That is why Peter was found so easily at the high priest's fire, even by damsels and maids, because of his speech. It berated him. And we're told in Acts chapter 4 that when the apostles opened their mouths, 
They perceived, the Jews did, that they were unlearned and ignorant men. And here in our context, these Jews, devout men, having been raised in all countries of the earth and somewhat of linguistic experts, because they still knew Hebrew and they still knew their languages, are here in Jerusalem and refer to these men as, they're Galileans. They don't even know how to speak our language, let alone these other languages. And that's there in verse 7 of this passage. Brethren, the secret society of the church of Jesus Christ had a very inauspicious beginning up until this day. They were afraid of the Jews. They hid in upper rooms. Jesus had to find them locked away because of their fear of the Jews. But no more. No more. There is Holy Spirit power that changed and transformed Peter and the other apostles that is available to change and transform you and me as well to be everything that we should be as the men and women of God. And don't doubt it. Because this gift of the Spirit, though first shown by the gift of tongues, those, that gift of tongues went away. It was the least gift God ever gave the church. It was pitifully inferior to any other office or gift in the church. Go read the list in order where they're ranked by the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, 28 through 31. So there are many more things that the Holy Spirit can do for us. And the book of Ephesians is the book to go to to see the different levels and ministries of the Holy Spirit in all six chapters. There are at least two references to the Holy Spirit in each of the six chapters of the epistle to the Ephesians, unlike any other epistle. If you want to see the different ministries of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2. I have read to you the verses. Let's look at verse 14. But Peter, he is now responding. Some are asking in verse 20, in verse 12, what meaneth this? There were some sober, considering men that are looking and thinking something divine is going on. Because we are not just hearing drivel and twaddle of men. We are not hearing vain thoughts. We're hearing the wonderful works of God. We're hearing it from Galileans. We're hearing it fluently. And we're hearing it in our own language. In which we were born and we know it. We know exactly how it should sound. This is a miracle. Verse 13, though, there were scorners there, as there often are in the presence of the preaching of God's word, that respond by accusing the apostles of being drunk. This is the logical fallacy of poisoning the well. If you can throw something out to get a person to discredit the, the one speaking, it's a form of the ad hominem fallacy, but it's to poison the well of making someone think this person has a problem that is distorting their speech and their argumentation. And so he poisoned the well by saying these men are drunk. But drunk men don't speak fluently the wonderful works of God in foreign languages known by those that knew the language as well. And so Peter will address that. But let's get Peter. Peter standing up. Peter was afraid to be exposed just 50 days earlier. Peter was afraid of the Jews. Now he stands up and there is a crowd. And some of the crowd is railing on the apostles and the disciples for being drunk. So they're not all friendly. It's not altogether a friendly audience. But Peter stands up by the power of the Holy Ghost and the new boldness he has from the Lord Jesus Christ and lifted up his voice. 
He didn't whisper in a corner. He didn't say, would you men like to follow me out to Bethany? Let's go out to the Mount of Olives where we can have a little separation from Jerusalem and I'll tell you about the gospel there. No, right there in the middle of Jerusalem, he lifts up his voice and says unto them, ye men of Judea, we've just been working our way through the gospel of John. In John chapter 7, Jesus did not want to leave Galilee and travel 70 miles south to Jerusalem. In that place, it was called Jewry. Do you remember? John chapter 7. He did not want to go to Jewry because, and the apostles didn't want to go to Jewry either, because they wanted to kill them. They wanted to kill the Lord Jesus Christ and his followers. What happened to Peter? What happened to Peter? He met for a prayer meeting. And he met for a prayer meeting with all those meeting for, in that prayer meeting of one mind and one heart and of one accord. And this is what the Holy Spirit does for men. He lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, ye Jewry, I was afraid of you just a few months ago, but I'm no longer afraid of you. Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. I have some stuff to tell you that you don't know, that you need to know. Now this is bold. This is wonderful. This is the way the word of God is to be preached. This is Elihu. This is David. This is Paul. This is Jesus. This is John. They all preached the same way because they all had the same spirit in them. They were not afraid of men. In fact, the, the Lord would tell Jeremiah and Ezekiel, don't you dare be intimidated by the faces of those that you preach to or I will confound you in front of them. You be an adamant piece of flint, and you be a stone, and let your forehead be a rock against them. Don't be moved by them. And so Peter has had a transformation. And and before I leave this point, you can be transformed. There is nothing God expects or asks of you in the gospel that he will not give you the strength to do and to do it well according to his promise and according to this example that we have right here. Verse 14, beautiful to read it. The Holy Spirit is not a gift given to us to supersede the Scriptures, because Peter's about to quote Scripture, though he's full of the Holy Ghost, and that's important to remember. You know, there's a group today, the Pentecostals and the Charismatics, that put their value on some spirit that they have rather than the Word of God. But the Holy Spirit wrote the Word of God and the Holy Spirit helps us use the Word of God and it's the Word of God we want to preach that the Holy Spirit takes and applies in your heart and your mind. And so it's important here to see this, though he is full of the Holy Ghost and can preach perfectly the wonderful works of God in other languages, he's going to quote Scripture as soon as he gets going. And then he's going to quote Scripture again when we get over to verses 22 through 27. Or so, he's going to quote from Psalm 16. Here he's going to quote from Joel 2. It's a, it's a warning and a reminder for us. Verse 15, For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. He immediately contradicts the scorners. It's nine o'clock in the morning. We're not drunk. That's just a rule of life. Men don't get drunk in the morning. You say, well, I once knew a man. Your exception proves the rule. That's why you said, I once knew a man. Men get drunk at night. That's why they're called nightclubs. 
That's why they open up at night. That's why they're not open for breakfast. That's why they're not open for lunch. They're open at night. The Bible tells us that. The Apostle Paul reasoned from it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that those that are drunk are drunken in the night. Thank you. Thank you, scorners. You don't have an argument. First of all, these are Galileans preaching the wonderful works of God fluently in languages in which you were born and they weren't. Languages you learned and they didn't. And you know it's a miracle. But for your little accusation, I'm going to take you off and saw your legs off with just a natural consideration. It's 9 a.m. in the morning, the third hour of the day. They're not drunk. Verse 16. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Peter showed Holy Ghost understanding of the Bible that he had not had before. Peter did not understand very much at all. If Peter would say, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, when Jesus asked, Who do men say that I am? In Matthew chapter 16, it's only a few verses later, Jesus has to say to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. He was a confused man. He did not want Jesus to go to Jerusalem. He did not want Jesus to suffer. He did not want Jesus to die. When Jesus offered to wash his feet, he wanted a sponge bath. The man was confused about the word of God. And it's just a good lesson for us that without the Holy Spirit, we'll be confused about the, word, the will and the word of God as well. But Jesus had breathed on them and told them, understand the scriptures in Luke 24 and John chapter 20. So a change was taking place so that Peter could stand up in Acts chapter 1 and say, brethren, we've got scripture that we need to fulfill. Judas Iscariot fulfilled Bible prophecy in losing his office of the bishopric. We need to replace him. What, Peter, where did you get that kind of understanding? By the Holy Spirit. Right. When we read our Bibles every day, we had better pray the prayer of David in Psalm 119 and verse 18. Right. Open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Amen. We need to pray the prayer of Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 that the spirit of revelation and understanding in the knowledge of God might be given to us. Though the church at Ephesus had Paul as their pastor for over two years, they needed that ministry of the Holy Spirit. Peter needed that ministry of the Holy Spirit. And by all means, you and I need that ministry of the Holy Spirit. Right. Pray for your pastor that way. And pray for yourself that way when you read the Word of God. This is that. With the most precise language possible, Peter taught the specific fulfillment of Joel's prophecy right here with this event. Whether you understand the application or not is fully irrelevant to the truth. Fully believe Peter. Fully believe Peter. Peter is an inspired apostle. He said, this is that. We believe him. We do not experience the events of this chapter now, nor will they be experienced in the future. They were being fulfilled right then in spite of how often Benny Hinn, Jimmy Swaggart, Kenneth Copeland, or others quoted adoringly as something being fulfilled by their ministries. It was fulfilled 2,000 years ago. And an end was put to it 2,000 years ago. All the verses were ended 2,000 years ago. Peter said, this is that. It doesn't matter if you don't understand it. 
It doesn't matter if you can't take every single word that we're about to read from Joel chapter 2 and give it a perfect application. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you can understand these words. This is that. Amen. This that you're seeing right now is that which Joel told us about. The errors here are terrible. It is in the future tense. When we get into the actual words of verse 17, it shall come to pass in the last days. It's in the future tense because Joel wrote it in 600 B.C. What tense should he have used in your opinion? Or my opinion? This is very important. The Charismatics and the Pentecostals, which got their beginning... You know you can go home and type in Agnes Osmond. I'll do it for you in an update. Agnes Osmond in a Google search box and find out that Pentecostalism and the Charismatics got their start on New Year's Day at 11 p.m. in the evening, the first day of the year of 1901 in Topeka, Kansas. It's all identified. They're not ashamed of it. Their religion is only 116 years old. But... They want to claim this passage as God pouring out His Holy Spirit. And so they've had their first wave, then the second wave, then the third wave of all this junk. But you know what we do? We're Bible believers. We're Bible Christians. And we stand with the Baptists who have rejected those apostolic gifts for 19 centuries and plus. Lord, help us and give us wisdom. Right here we've got the explanation for the passage. This is that. It is so important to know exactly what a prophecy is dealing with. And Peter tells us. Peter's the inspired apostle. It doesn't matter what anyone else tells you. This is that. It doesn't matter how many commentaries you find that are written by charismatics or Pentecostals or by Arminians or by futurists when it comes to Bible prophecy and try to tell you there's another explanation for this passage. Peter, the inspired apostle by the Holy Spirit, said this is that. It's in the future tense because Joel wrote it in the future tense. Peter identified it plainly as occurring right then and being fulfilled right then. Don't be discouraged or distracted by the words last days. Last days. Were these the last days? Look, let's look. I'll read to you Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners spake unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. So when Jesus came on the scene, it was the last days. In what sense was it the last days? It was the last dispensation that God has on this earth, the church. Second, it was the last days of Israel because they were just 40 years of being annihilated and wiped out as God's nation on earth with the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman armies in 70 AD. It was the last days. It doesn't matter what anyone else tells you. It doesn't matter what you might think. It doesn't matter that you are living 2,000 years, 20 centuries after this fact. This period of time is the last days. Right. Especially for the Jews. So Paul, when he writes Hebrews, opens up that first chapter with these are the last days. And God has sent his son to speak to us. Israel was going to be destroyed for the final time. They'd been destroyed before. They'd been taken captive. They'd been dispersed throughout the world, but they were going to be destroyed for the final time. And there's places that we could go and look at some of those statements 
there are timed prophecies in Daniel. In Daniel, there are timed prophecies. And Daniel, by Michael and by Gabriel, was told about starting points and ending points of prophecies about Israel, especially in the last three chapters. In the last three chapters of Daniel, chapters 10, 11, and 12, there are timed prophecies there that begin with Cyrus and end with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And there is a consecutive prophecy of kings from Cyrus through Xerxes, through Alexander the Great, through, through Herod, through Caesar Augustus, all the way to the destruction of Jerusalem. And Daniel is told in 12.7, when the holy people are scattered, then all these things have been fulfilled. When were the holy people scattered? In 70 AD by the Roman armies. And so there's a, these are the last days. Okay, as we work down through and we look at this prophecy, first, we never forget verse 16. This is that. If you want to highlight a few words that help explain the passage, it's this is that. Don't let your mind run. Don't let Tim LaHaye and any left-behind junk discourage you, distract you, divert you, or corrupt you, or deceive you. Because this is that. And it was happening right then. The Holy Spirit had just been poured out on a mixed company of not rich prophets in a college of prophets, as the Bible tells us about, but fishermen, old, young, male, female, rich, poor, no distinction to class, no distinction to age, no distinction to sex. And isn't that what he said? Joel wrote, it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. This, didn't, this wasn't poured out on the Chinese, the Japanese, the American Indians, the Aztecs. It wasn't poured out on all flesh that way. It was poured out on all flesh in no distinction of sex, age, or status, state, role, position in life. Because the, it's defined for us. Your sons and your daughters, that's new, shall prophesy. And your young men, not older men, shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. They're both included. See, age, first sex, then age, and on my servants and on my handmaidens, the poor, slaves, would be given my spirit. I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So that's the all flesh that is in this passage. The apostles, 12 of them, there was 12. They lost one. They gained one. They lost a Judas. They gained a Matthias. And others, 70, had had spirit power before, but not all spirit power. They had limited spirit power. Remember, they had come back to Jesus saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us in thy name. And he said, notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Amen. These 12 and the other 70 had spirit power earlier, but not all flesh. It was men. It was 82 men that were sent out two by two. And now it's women included as well. If you want to see some handmaidens that prophesied, look at Acts chapter 21 with me just for a moment. Acts chapter 21, and it tells us about Philip the evangelist, who was initially a deacon, but he was an evangelist because he went and preached the gospel in Samaria. Acts chapter 8. 
And it tells us he was one of the seven. That means he started out as a deacon from Acts chapter 6. Verse 9, And the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. There it is. There's the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy when it comes to girls, handmaidens, in those days. And, and on my servants. Acts chapter 21. The apostolic period of time of 40 years was different from all that came before it, the 1,500 years of Moses' law, and it was different from the 1,900 years that have followed. It was a transitional period of time. There was no New Testament. There was no book of Acts. Yet. There were no Pauline epistles. There were no Gospels yet. So what did the church rely on for the way of wisdom? God pouring out his spirit and causing men, women, and girls to prophesy. And they prophesied. And the scriptures were written down by the apostles, verified by the apostles, and the canon of 27 books was put together by about 70 A.D. Not by the Catholic councils of 300 and 400 A.D., but in the first century. Because they needed a word of wisdom in a service. A prophet would stand up, and he would run out the length of his tether for three or four or five minutes, and all of a sudden, he, he's done. He sits down, another prophet would stand up. This is all described in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. They would get a word of wisdom, they would get a word of knowledge, and they would be able to stand up and address questions and answer with the divine will of God for how a church was to operate and for doctrinal questions that rose. But that knowledge was going to end. That wisdom was going to end and the gift of tongues was going to cease. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us when that which is perfect has come, and the perfect thing that came was the scriptures of God. So that in, by 70 AD, when the scriptures had come together, there was no need for these gifts. And these gifts were signs and wonders for, to, for unbelievers to get their attention. And see, there's a lot of unbelievers right now in Jerusalem, unbelievers of Jesus Christ, and their attention has been gotten by these handmaidens prophesying and declaring the wonderful works of God. So for two reasons. One, it was God's revelatory miracle to convey truth before there was a New Testament. Second, it was the way to get attention by signs and wonders of unbelievers. And the Bible tells us that the gift of tongues is a sign for them that believe not. It is not for a thrill in a service of believers. Right. It's not for a thrill in your closet. It's a sign for unbelievers, and it went away 1,947 years ago when we had the perfect scriptures. We don't need anything like that now. We don't need a vision. We don't need a revelation. We don't need a dream. We don't need any of those things described there because we have the apostles that have written down everything that is necessary. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness that the man of God may get a ways on the journey, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished, unto all good works. How much is missing? Nothing. It's called the perfect law of liberty in James chapter 1. That's what we have now. Thank you, Lord, for your blessing. Now, just a little point. It's really a pretty big point to some people. Why did 1 Corinthians 11 say that if a woman wasn't going to shave her hair off, if she, then she should wear a veil or a hat or a covering. Why does it say that in 1 Corinthians 11? And I'm looking out right now, and I don't see head coverings. 
But if a woman prays or prophesies, she's supposed to have her head covering. Because 1 Corinthians 11 matches with Acts 2, and it was only for that transitional period of time between Old Testament and New Testament, 40 years, there were inspired women like we just read about, like we just read about in Acts chapter 21, the daughters of Philip, and when they spoke under inspiration in a service, they were to show public deferment to men by putting another covering on their head in addition to hair. That gift has gone away, and it hasn't been around since 70 AD, so there is no necessity to wear a second head covering. The woman's hair is given her for a covering, as that chapter goes on to explain. If you don't take the position that I just reminded you of, and you can check it out in our verse-by-verse commentary on 1 Corinthians, then you're going to have serious difficulties about praying at home, praying in the shower and praying when you're driving. What hat are you going to wear? The Atlanta Braves? Wait a minute. It says a woman praying or prophesying. It's about the assembly, and it's a transitional period of time. And the apostle is so careful that lest women should presume too much, in chapter 14, just three chapters later, he says, it is not permitted for women to speak in the church. Well, now, wait a minute. How can you pray and prophesy in the church and not speak in the church? Well, he granted the exception to women under inspiration to speak in the church, and all the other kind of speaking in the church was not to happen, even then. What other kind of speaking in the church did he have in consideration? He tells you in the context of 1 Corinthians 14, if they will learn anything, let them ask their husband their questions at home. Disruptive type questioning in an assembly with men was not to be tolerated so that all things could be done decently and in order. If a woman was under inspiration and she got up to pray or prophesy, there was praying under inspiration. If I pray by the Spirit, praying under inspiration, or prophesying, which is preaching under inspiration, then she was to have her head covered. Enough on that, and I'm sorry about all that. The church at Corinth had many of these gifts that were given to them, and it's the first epistle to the Corinthians that you go to, chapters 12, 13, and 14, to read the most about these gifts. If we make this prophecy future, because it is in the future tense, in verse 17, it shall come to pass in the last day, saith God, I will. That's future tense. Pour out. Your sons and your daughters shall. That's future tense. But it's only Joel's future tense, not Peter's future tense. Peter was all about the present because he said, this is. Is is not future tense. Is is present tense. Is is right now. This is that. Making this prophecy future has led to Pentecostalism and helped Arminianism, futurism, and literalism. And the passage destroys them all. If you'll understand Peter's words, this is that. Charismatics of all kinds quote this passage along with Acts 2, 38 and 39 and apply it to themselves. They transfer Holy Ghost baptism of the apostles to water baptism and require speaking in tongues by every single person for 2,000 years that's been baptized. Though, for 1,900 years, no one got that baptism of the Holy Ghost until New Year's Day, 1901. Arminians cannot read the day of the Lord in verse 20 and, and see the word saved in verse 21 without seeing hellfire in John 3, 16. 
Futurists see all the future tense verbs and deny that such events have occurred thus far, so they must be future. Literalists, because they reject metaphorical language, deny this prophecy passed against Peter. It's incredible what you can learn and be saved from with three words. This is that. This biblical usage, an Old Testament prophecy in the future tense, used in the New Testament for a present or past event, is called prophetic perspective. From the prophet Joel's perspective in 600 B.C., this this inspiration from God about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit was future, very future, way future. But to Peter, 640 years, 30 years later, it's present. To us, it's 2,000 years past, though it is future tense verbs, and we have to identify the who, whom, when, where, what, and why of the context of the words. Where did they come from? Who wrote them? And when did he write them? And it's Joel that wrote them. Lord, thank you for teaching us such things. New Testament writers accurately using an Old Testament prophecy's future tense verbs may not intend the future at all. They may intend a past event. They may intend a present event. Lord, show us that. You know, there's a lot of examples of this in the Bible, and I've given you those before on a number of occasions, and I I hope you don't need to hear them again right now. You know, Haggai said that yet once more I shake the heavens and the earth. God was going to shake the heavens and the earth. But when you go read Haggai chapter 2, it says it's in conjunction with the latter house. Israel only had two houses, and they're only going to have two houses. The former house was built by Solomon. The latter house was built by Zerubbabel. The latter house was the house that God blessed because Jesus came to it. And the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel to encourage him said, don't worry about the fact that it looks really insignificant and small and poor right now. I'm going to give this latter house greater glory than the former house. There's only two houses. When you use words that are comparative like former and latter, there's only two. I'm going to give this latter house greater glory than the former house. It's one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. Why? Because when I read about Solomon dedicating his temple, how can there be a temple with greater glory than that? The glory of God filled that former house so that the priests could not minister because God's presence was in it. And Solomon offered 22,000 oxen. Would that make an ox roast if you did 22,000 oxen? And 120,000 sheep at one time. And because the priests couldn't slay and and light them all, God just dropped fire down out of heaven and burned them up. It was a glorious day. Solomon gets down on his knees, lifts up his hands to heaven, and prays one of the most wonderful prayers in the Bible. How can the latter house have greater glory than the former house? Because the desire of all nations will come to this latter house. And in this house will I give peace. It was in that house that hasn't existed since 70 A.D., that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom by the Lord Jesus Christ who made peace through the blood of his cross on the hill of Calvary. That's why I love that passage. But now my point, God calls all that the shaking of heaven and earth. Paul quotes it in Hebrews chapter 12. Yet once more I shake. Future. But Paul says, we having received a kingdom therefore. Because what 
Haggai saw his future was already passed to Paul, and that was the changing of the guard. That was the changing of the dispensation. That was the changing of the worship of God from Old Testament to New Testament. Heavenly things were shaken. Earthly things were shaken. There was a new priesthood. Jesus was the priest after the order of Melchizedek, and all of us were priests because Jesus has made us all kings and priests unto God and His Father. It was a tremendous change. 27 books added to the canon of 39 books. The worship outside of Jerusalem. No more animal blood. Hebrews 9 and verse 10 calls it the time of reformation. That's the reformation that we own. The reformation of Hebrews 9.10. We don't own the reformation of baby sprinklers that stayed as baby sprinklers. We don't own the reformation of state church men that still held the state church, whether it's Germany or Switzerland. Thank you, Lord. But see, he used the future tense. Paul used the future tense in Hebrews chapter 12 because he's quoting Haggai accurately from the prophet Haggai. Oh, how about Hebrews 8? After these days, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. I will. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Future? Not a chance. Who had it future? Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31, Jesus said, This cup is the New Testament. This is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus said that. Do you know who I believe? Jesus. I don't believe anyone else that has anything to say about Jeremiah 31 or Hebrews chapter 8 because they are denying the Lord Jesus Christ. They are missing the prophetic perspective. It's in future tense in Hebrews 8 only because Paul is quoting Jeremiah accurately and there's more of these. In Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 15, the Council of Jerusalem, Paul's going to get up and explain what God has done by him with the Gentiles. Peter's going to get up and explain that God started converting Gentiles with me. James is going to give the solution. And his solution is this. Verse 14, verse 13. Men and brethren, hearken unto me. James settles the council at Jerusalem. Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets. See? What you just heard from Peter and Paul, the prophet Amos told us about in his ninth chapter. After this I will return. That is only after something and future tense to Amos. James is saying, you just heard the fulfillment of this prophecy. Are you able to follow me? This is beautiful understanding that God gave us and why we believe certain things. After this, I will return. Those aren't James' words. Those are Amos' words. After this, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord who doeth all these things. That's the quotation. Then James says, Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. The conversion of Gentiles, as 
relayed to the Council of Jerusalem by Peter and Paul fulfilled the prophecy of rebuilding the kingdom of God, the kingdom of David, because the son of David was sitting on his throne, but the Gentiles were being brought in. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. When did Jesus sit down as king? When he ascended up into heaven. When was the kingdom of God first announced? By the ministries of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. What do we join when we are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and submit our lives to him? The kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for inviting us Gentiles in. Known unto God are all his works from the foundation of the world. Back to Acts chapter 2. And so we have this is that in verse 16. Then we have the prophecy in verses 17 and 18 of what God would do with out respect of sex, age, or status in life by pouring out his spirit so that prophesying and visions and dreams and prophesying, again stated, would occur by all. Visions were given because there wasn't scripture. Dreams were given because there wasn't New Testament scripture yet. On both ends of it, they prophesied. To prophesy is to publicly teach to declare a revelation from God. It doesn't matter how you do it. Prophesying is preaching. When 1 Thessalonians 5 says, despise not prophesying, it means don't despise preaching. See, we we get the idea that prophecy and prophesying only means foretelling the future. But there's more to it than that. It was the gift of prophecy to declare the will of God. It's broader than just future events, though it includes future events. Now we come to verses 19 and 20. And I will show future tense, but it's still part of the same passage that Peter said, this is that. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. Now Joel is the one that told of a great and notable day of the Lord coming. It was a great and terrible day coming because it was a day of judgment that Joel saw upon his people. It was the day of judgment that Malachi warned about. The day of judgment John warned about. The day of judgment Jesus warned about. The day of judgment Paul's going to warn about after this. It's the judgment of the Jewish nation. Peter is addressing a specific audience. He is not addressing Gentiles in the Piedmont of the Carolinas. He is addressing ye men of Judea and all ye men that dwell in Jerusalem. Hear these words. Joel told you this was going to happen, and it's happened. You see men and women, high and low, old and young, prophesying and declaring the wonderful works of God. Joel also said that it would, there would be signs that would occur before the great and notable day of the Lord come. This is where so many have left the truth of the gospel. 200 years ago, before the the 18th century, all Christians understood this. They understood these passages. They were historicists when it came to interpreting Bible prophecy in passages like this. We are historicists with them. We are not futurists. We don't take all the prophecies of the Bible and run them out into the future with some indeterminable gap between now and then, between then and then, between the apostles and it being fulfilled. We're not preterists. Preterists say every single prophecy in the New Testament, and I've preached that error to you before, every single prophecy has been fulfilled. 
Preter means past. Preterists believe every single prophecy. We are in the new heavens and the new earth right now. The judgment's already taken place. Satan's been consigned to the lake of fire. Yeah, I know, you didn't know that, did you? Uh, they're preterists. We don't, those are two ditches. We want to go down the crown of the road, and so we are historicists. We are historicists by believing the timing that God gave us in the Bible. We don't care what Tim LaHaye believes. We don't care what Darby and Bollinger and Schofield and, oh, late great planet, or Hal Lindsey and the rest of those cartoon writers came up with. Nor do we believe all the preterist junk that's coming out today from the Church of Christ and others. We want to stick with what the Bible says. And Peter said, this is that. Was there a great and notable day of the Lord that was imminent upon the Jews? Absolutely. Look at Malachi chapter 4. Just give me a couple of more minutes before our break. I have not accomplished what I wanted to in this first sermon today, but we will trust the Lord with the timing. Malachi chapter 4. Let's get chapter 3. Let me, let me share a couple verses from chapter 3, the first couple of verses. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. Who is that messenger? John the Baptist. And the Lord, whom ye seek, shall suddenly come to his temple. What temple was it? The latter house. The desire of all nations would come. Even the messenger of the covenant. What covenant was it? The new covenant. We celebrate that new covenant communion every time we take up the cup and say... This cup is the new covenant or the new testament in my blood. Whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. This is the first coming of Jesus Christ. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he is going to judge, verse 5, against the sorcerers and the adulterers and the false swearers of that generation. He called that generation a generation of adulterers. Now come over to chapter 4. I can't preach Malachi to you today, though I'd like to. I did send it to you an update this week to look at least at Malachi chapter 4. Okay, verse 1. For behold, the day cometh. A day is coming from an Old Testament perspective upon the Jewish people. There's no apostle to the Gentiles yet, and there is no prophet to the Gentiles. This is a message to the Jews. Behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven. So there's fire involved. And all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly, shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Please remember those words. But unto you that fear my name, there's going to be deliverance for those that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and follow his advice. Verse 3, ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. That means they got burned up. In the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses. Don't go forward to Paul preaching about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Remember what Moses taught you about what I will do to this people if they disregard me long enough. Remember the law of Moses. Verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Matthew 11, Matthew 17, and Luke chapter 1, all three tell us exactly who this prophet is, and he is one man and only one man and no other man ever. Who is he? John the Baptist. Jesus said, if you have ears to hear, hear. This is the prophet Elijah that was to come. Right. Most men don't want to hear that. They want to make up some prophet that is yet to come. 
But Matthew 11, Jesus said he was John the Baptist. Matthew 17, Jesus said he was John the Baptist. Luke chapter 1, the angel said he was John the Baptist. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. John had a day to warn Israel about that was coming. And it's not the second coming. It was the first coming of Jesus Christ and what he would do thereafter to those that rejected him. John would turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. And the Old Testament ends with that curse. And that curse came upon the nation of Israel when Jesus walked out of their temple for the last time and said, Your house is left unto you desolate. Desolate. It would be reduced by desolation to nothing. He said, Every stone will be tore apart. There will not be two stones left, apostles, to this building. Do not admire it. He had called it his father's house of prayer. But now he said, your house is left unto you desolate. Okay, Matthew chapter 3. Let's see what John the Baptist preached, if he knew there was a day coming. Oh, I was 20 years old before I heard this. 40 years ago, I thank God that he showed me the gospel of Jesus Christ that includes so much more than I had heard to that point. Matthew chapter 3, here is Elijah the prophet. Here is his ministry, starting at verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation, don't miss the word. A generation is a group of people living at a particular time. My father's generation is not my generation, and my generation is not my children's generation in the fullest sense of those words. Generation. Oh, generation of vipers! Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Oh, there's wrath coming. On that generation. Who's warned you? Bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also, not 2,000 years from now, and now also the axe is laid, is laid unto the root of the trees. Root and branch. Remember the scriptures, please. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water. There's three baptisms here. The baptism of water introduced by the first Baptist preacher, John the Baptist, immersion. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost, the day of Pentecost, and with fire, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, whose fan is in his hand. He is already fanning the flames of civil rebellion that will bring the Roman legions upon that city, whose fan is in his hand, and he will truly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, those the believers of Acts chapter 2 and verse 21, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Notice Malachi, Elijah John the Baptist, John the Baptist's ministry. Look at Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, about the Lord Jesus Christ, his parable of the householder. A king has a vineyard, gives it to a householder, and goes into a far country. 
It's the Lord Jesus Christ leaving the vineyard of Israel, leaving the Jewish church, and they did not render him the fruits of obedience. And so Jesus asks those Pharisees that he was addressing, what will the Lord of the vineyard do in verse 40? They say unto him, see, they understood, and God helped them with a little bit of inspiration right here. They say unto him, this is Matthew 21, verse 41, he will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. God will destroy the Jews, give the kingdom to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles will believe it and obey it and give God the fruits of his grace. Jesus said, did you never read? Your scriptures already told you about this. Therefore I say to you, verse 43, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. That's the Gentiles. Whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. That's repentance. When we fall on the Lord Jesus Christ and when we fall before him, we repent and we're broken. We're changed in our lives. But on whomsoever it shall fall, this stone of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, it will grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them, not of some future generation, not of America, of them. Chapter 22, the kingdom of heaven, the gospel era, the New Testament is compared to a king making a marriage for his son, but they made light of it in verse 5, and they mistreated his servants in verse 6. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth. Who is the king? The God of heaven and his son, Jesus Christ. And he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Right. Who did they murder? The son, because they said in Matthew chapter 21, let's kill the son, he's the heir, then the kingdom can be all ours. They killed the son, they were murderers, God burned up their city. Look at Luke chapter 19. Let's get the beloved physician's words. He's the one that wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2. What did he say about what was coming? Why didn't I ever hear about this? In all my Sunday school papers, why didn't I hear about the destruction of Jerusalem? Why didn't I hear about the day of judgment coming upon the nation of murderers that crucified the Lord of glory? Why didn't I ever hear about these passages? Lord, thank you for the truth. Amen. All of our fathers in the faith believed this until 200 years ago. And then the decline began. The number one commentary by bought and used by conservative evangelicals is Matthew Henry's commentary. Why don't, why don't they try to read Matthew Henry's commentary? They promote it, they buy it, they sell it, they stock their stores with it, they say it's the best. Charles Spurgeon said it was the best, but Charles Spurgeon understood what I'm telling you right now. Matthew Henry understood exactly what I'm telling you. He applied Acts chapter 2 exactly as I'm telling you. He understood all of these verses that I'm telling you right now. Luke 19, verse 41. Here's Jesus beholding the city of Jerusalem where Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 2. Luke 19, verse 41. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes, for the days shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side, 
That is a military operation of besieging a city and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. The temple would be torn apart stone by stone because they didn't know when the Lord Jesus Christ was there and they falsely accused him, tortured him and crucified him. And he burned up their city and destroyed that temple because it was no longer God's temple. He had said that when he left it, your house is left unto you desolate. The abomination of desolation is nothing but foreign abominable pagan armies entering in upon the Holy Land and laying desolate the city of Jerusalem. Matthew chapter 24, Mark chapter 13, call it the abomination of desolation. Luke, because he's writing to Gentiles, doesn't use such obscure Hebrew language taken from Daniel chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 12. Luke tells us exactly what the abomination of desolation is. You shouldn't need any help because Jesus said, your house is left unto you desolate. So we know that it's that temple. When did that temple disappear? There's only two houses, former and latter. Look at Luke 21. Luke 21. Verse 20. And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies. When ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies. What does it say in Matthew and Mark? Matthew 24, Mark 13. When ye shall see the abomination of desolation. See, Mark tells us what it is. It's armies encompassing the city of Jerusalem. All men, all Christians, understood this 200 years ago. None of them tried to take this prophecy and run it out 2,000 years into the future and make it meaningless, because it's meaningless in the future. When Jesus comes, fleeing to the mountains is going to do what for you? When Jesus comes, nursing your baby is going to hinder you in what way? I've thought that a woman that loved nursing her children would love to have the Lord come while she's nursing a baby. I don't know why Jesus was so worried about women nursing their babies, unless he meant this for that generation and in very real terms. Verse 20 of Luke 21, And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. See, it's armies that are the abomination, foreign pagan armies with Roman ensigns standing in the Holy Land, to destroy it. God had delivered his people. He gave them over to Assyrians. He gave them over to Babylonians, but he brought them back. But now he was going to disperse them through the world and bring in the Gentiles. Verse 21, Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let not them that are in the countries enter therein too. Stay away from Judea and Jerusalem, because the Romans are going to torch the place. And they did. 1.1 million died in the besieging of Jerusalem. All men know it that do any reading at all. 1.1 million. There has never been such tribulation that has fall upon one city or one group of people that fell upon them. For these be the days of vengeance. What vengeance? Vengeance against the enemies of God among the people of Israel for crucifying his son. These be the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Written by Malachi. Written by Haggai written by Joel. And so when we look at Acts chapter 2, we have Peter saying, this is that. Then two verses, verses 17 and 18, are a description of the spiritual gifts given to 
those 120 without respect to age, sex, or state of status. Then verses 19 and 20, upheaval in the heavens and upheaval on earth, blood and fire and vapor of smoke before that notable day of the Lord come. And that notable day of the Lord was the destruction of Jerusalem for murdering his son and for being such rebels against the Lord Jesus Christ, rejecting his gospel and the peace that he offered to that city repeatedly by many miracles. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now you can go back and read this in Joel 2. It's Joel 2, verses 28 through 32. It's the last five verses of Joel 2. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, anyone that believed on Jesus Christ and followed him, they were told exactly what to do. When you see the armies encompass Jerusalem, get out of that city, run to the mountains and hide. It is called the flight to Pella. Most people have never even heard the history of the Bible and the history of Christians and what they did and how they survived. Jesus told them so carefully, when you see the armies encompass the city, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Get out of that countryside and get into the mountains and you'll be protected there. Well, and that, i got to finish with this. Well, if a city is encompassed, how do you get out of it? In 66 AD, Cestius Gallus brought the 12th legion from Antioch to take the city of Jerusalem. He encompassed the whole city. He could easily have taken it. The Jews all understand this history. Josephus records this history. The name of the, the legion commander, Cestius Gallus. You can read as long as you want to about Cestius Gallus. He had the 12th legion around the city of Jerusalem. Nero was Caesar. They hated the Jews because the Jews were a rebellious people. Cestius Gallus withdrew his legion for no reason at all and did not take the city and left. And the Jewish zealots chased that legion and nearly destroyed it, which raised the wrath of the Romans to a feverish pitch who's fanning his flame so that they sent three legions the next time under Vespasian. Nero died. Vespasian takes the throne in Rome. His son Titus, the prince that shall come, Daniel chapter 9, brought those three legions and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and tore it to shreds and tore up the foundations of that place right. so it barely looked like it had been inhabited when he was done with it. In that three-and-a-half-year time period between 66 A.D. and 70 A.D., the three and a half years carefully identified in Daniel chapter 8 as being fulfilled when the Jews would be, Daniel chapter 12, Daniel chapter 12, being fulfilled when the Jews would be scattered, they all left. Josephus write, writes about the most eminent people of the city of Jerusalem fleeing the city of Jerusalem before it was destroyed. They knew they had three and a half years. They saw the city encompassed with armies. They knew that Rome was now angrier than they had ever been. And they went and hid in Pella. It is called the flight to Pella. Pella is in the Decapolis. It's in the mountains across the Jordan River. A very safe place to be. 30 to 60 miles away, depending on what part of Pella, Perea, or Decapolis that you want to stay in. And the historical records are there. Eusebius, Epiphanius, and other 
historians of the third and fourth centuries wrote, no Christians were destroyed in the destruction of Jerusalem. They all escaped to Pella and Perea, just as the Savior had told them. One more verse. You know, when, when you look at this, the great notable day of the Lord, you see, you see Malachi, you see John the Baptist, you see Jesus talking about this day. One more verse. Peter's got two points to make. One, this that you're seeing is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy of the Holy Spirit on the people of Israel. The second point, Jesus has risen from the dead and is seated at God's right hand, waiting to make his enemy his footstool. He's about to grind someone to powder. That's what it says. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Verse 37, the crowd says, what shall we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized. 38, 39, for the promise is unto you and to your children. The promise of the Holy Spirit. Then look what it says, Acts 2.40. And with many other words, a majority of his preaching, a large part of his preaching, with many other words, did he testify and exhort saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. This abominable, diabolic generation of adulterers and adulteresses that killed the Lord Jesus Christ, save yourself from them. So you've got Acts 2.40 with Acts 2.21 with John, Jesus, Malachi, and other all the way back to Moses describing the destruction of Jerusalem. And those that called upon the name of the Lord were saved. Right. You say it had been hard to live in the mountains for very long. Yes. And so Jesus said, for the, for the elect's sakes, those days shall be shortened. And Titus took the city. Remember, Josephus was a Pharisee of the Pharisees and a general of the Jewish army. He was captured and was the translator for Titus. He was an eyewitness to everything that took place, and he wrote it in the wars of the Jews. You can read, about, you can read all of this in Josephus if you know where to read. Josephus wrote a lot, so please limit yourself to the wars of the Jews if you want to read about this. Josephus saw that it was a devil-possessed generation and that the Jewish factions inside killing each other more Jews were killed by Jews inside the city walls of Jerusalem than the Romans killed. And they took the city a lot faster than they had thought and considered a miracle from God, even though Titus didn't even know God at all, and Josephus wasn't a Christian at all. This is as far as we can make it right now. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. May we all believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and humble ourselves before him for things in time and eternity because his blessing is upon all those that call upon the name of the Lord. Amen.